Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Joan Drapkin. It is June 26, 2017. We're at the Nicholson Library. And Joan, we'll start you off with an easy one, which is why wine? Why wine? Well, I was very involved. I moved here in 1970, and I moved here at this very same time as the pioneer winemakers were beginning. And luckily, we all became friends. So the Letts, Dave and Diana, Dick and Nancy Ponzi, Dick Erath, uh, Myron Redfern, all of these people were friends, and in fact, it was such a struggling little community at the time, we pitched in and helped, whether it was selling wine at Thanksgiving time or Memorial Day or leading people to the wineries. Um, and I also later started to work for Nick's, and I cooked at Nick's. And it was at Nick's Italian Cafe that the idea for the IPNC actually hatched. And there was a real estate agent, whose name escapes me for a moment, who came in. And we talked, all of us talked, mainly they, John West, Nick, John Roodhouse was the name of the real estate agent, David Lett, you know, they, they came up more or less with this idea. And I said, well, I would be happy to volunteer. I volunteered the first year uh, to organize the food part. And they hired, I believe the first year, the first hire was Susan Sokolblosser, who was the director. And so she did all the wine and I did all the food because my passion has always been the food and the food part of it. and. I was connected to the food industry through Nick's, but also because I knew a lot of chefs in Portland, and we sort of went on from there. And the food has always been as really as essential as the wine, because wine without food is really not as good. So what brought you to McMinnville in the first place? My husband and I lived in Laurel Canyon in LA at the height of a very rollicking time there. And he finished law school and took the Oregon and the California bars, passed both. But his brother had started probably the first organic farm, at least in Yamhill County, if not Oregon, in the late 60s in Sheridan, Oregon. And we came to visit him and they went fishing, and he caught a fish on the Nestucca River in the middle of winter, and he said, we're moving there. And the county seat was in McMinnville. So we moved here. I came kicking and crying, and it was a town of about 8,000 people. It was, very, it was not very sophisticated at all. It was very agricultural, a lot of wheat, berries, green beans, uh, Linfield was 
pretty dry campus. So we've, we've all come quite a long way, but at the very same time, unbeknownst to us, people were starting their vineyards at just the same time. And we all had children, and then they all grew up together because we all became friends. So how did you first get introduced to the people in the industry? How did you first become aware there was an Oregon wine industry that was just starting? Well, the way, the first thing that happened is there were a group of us that started a little private school for our children. And part of that group were people in the wine industry, like Jason Lett was one of the children. And um, I met and Ann Towsey was the name of a, this woman who started this Fifth Street School. So mm -hmm. our children went there. So Carmen, who now is the owner and director of Nix, mm -hmm. she was a child then. Her sister, her younger sister was a child. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Anyway, so we came then, I became very good friends with the Letts and they, needed help selling wine. I didn't, I did this only for fun. Mm -hmm. uh, so like on Thanksgiving weekends and things like that, I would go and, you know, sell the wine, sell the wine. And then Nick always just had an exclusively at that time, uh, Oregon wine list. He was a big supporter of Oregon wine right from the get go. Mm -hmm. So that's how we all kind of melded and merged and we had parties and we were all good friends. We had little kids, True. you know, just, just, it was luck. It was really luck. What was it like trying to sell wine into a population that didn't really know there was a local didn't wine industry? Didn't drink wine. It didn't drink wine. <laughs> it was, it was a push. <laughs> How did you go about educating? How did you go about selling? Well, you know, that really wasn't my bailiwick. Mm -hmm. I mean, when people would come for these big events, and there were a lot of people came, and a lot of people would come from Portland mm -hmm. and surrounding areas as well, the way you sold it is let them taste it and have food out, and they'd taste it and everything, and then they would, and there was a wine consciousness coming across America at that time, but nobody had really heard of Oregon wine. California wine was big. Mm -hmm. French wine was big. but. It was just very incremental and, and educating people on a person-to-person -person basis. And then there were more and more press about Oregon wine. But it really, it, Oregon wine now has this phenomenal uh, uh, reputation. But it was, you know, it was like selling lemonade at the side of the... <laughs> side of the road in a way because it was like please taste my lemonade 25 cents you know but the the marketing of the Oregon wine has been great and there's been a not only did the original pioneers but then there's this second generation that mm -hmm. came and they did a really good job and everybody spread out and that includes the Castiles from uh, Bethel Heights, uh, I mean, there was just, and people were very cooperative in the wine industry themselves. They worked together, they planned together. It wasn't quite as competitive as it is now, mm -hmm. but it was, people really, really uh, worked for the good of the whole at that time.
And it finally, with everybody working, it finally just kind of cascaded and caught on fire. And here we are, you know, in the middle of the most beautiful place on earth. What were some of your first impressions of uh, the wine community, the people you met? What were some of your, kind of your impressions of them as people? I love them. Are you kidding? <laughs> They're my best friends still. <laughs> I'm Dick and Nancy Ponzi. We're very, very close to. We adore them. Our families have grown up together. I now know their grandchildren who are growing up, more grown up anyway, <laughs> but are at the cusp of adulthood. And... Um, you know, we we love them, and the same uh, same with uh, Jason Lett. Mm -hmm. I was his uh, legal guardian for a while, and just you know, there was a great. They were fun, mm -hmm. and they still are. And we had great times. We had fabulous parties. Uh, uh, Lizzie Adelsheim and my daughter Remy. Mm -hmm. She, they grew, they were about the same age. They grew up together. So the Adelsheims and us, we did a lot of stuff together. There were one, mainly I can tell you there were wonderful parties. There wasn't <laughs> a lot of places to go here. Mm -hmm. So you had to create your own entertainment. And we certainly did. <laughs> it's hard to believe looking at us now, but it's true. <laughs> and so uh, Nick's opens at some point, And it, it's kind of the first fancy place to eat in the area. Well, it opened as a cafe, and okay. it still is. Um, it was never fancy, okay? But he started out, I can't remember the exact year, maybe around 75, 76, or 80. You'll have to check me on mm -hmm. the year. But... It started out, you could buy, it, it was, he came from the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and they did a prefix meal. So you have five courses for $12. <laughs> and that included soup, salad, pasta, and entree, and dessert. And uh, people loved it, but it took a long time. He, he had a lot of notoriety and a lot of press, mm -hmm. but people in McMinnville had no, no idea he was here. I'll never forget, I was walking down 3rd Street near Adams and Baker, and somebody said to me, have you ever heard of this Nick's Cafe? And at that time I was working for them. I said, I certainly have. And so they were kind of confused about where it was. I just walked them back <laughs> all the way to Evans and Third. I just walked them back and said, here it is. You'll go in, you'll enjoy it. And people did. And, and Nick has always been a very genial host. And he was a tremendous supporter of Oregon Wines. And then during the day when I worked, because I had a family at night, so I didn't cook there at night. I cooked during the day. Um, all the winemakers would come in themselves to sell their wines. They would have a case of wine on their shoulders, and then they'd come, and then, of course, we'd, you know, chew the fat <laughs> and have a good time. And Joan Erath, e at the time, was Mrs. Erath, is no longer. Um, she used to come in and sell wine, and, and we always looked forward to her. Well, you know, it was part of the job to taste the wine. Sure, sure. It was a hard job. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, do you know, 
What made Nick so intent on kind of focusing on Oregon wine? Do you have an, do you have an idea? You would need to ask him, but he is, his instincts are just right on. And he did, and he was excited that there was a wine industry here. Mm -hmm. And he, coming from California, I think he decided to promote Oregon because he had a small fledgling business and they had a small <laughs> fledgling business. Mm -hmm. So they helped each other. That was the spirit of cooperation that existed here. Mm -hmm. Very cooperative, mm -hmm. very much wanting to help each other. And so then how did you come to start working there? Well, it was through this little school, private school, that we started. So Ann Towsley was, was the uh, originator of the school, along with a woman who's still here called, her name now is Beth Dell. Um, and they started this little Fifth Street school. So Ann Towsley was best friends with Nick. And she kept saying, I have a friend who's going to come here and open a restaurant. And so we all got behind the restaurant mm -hmm. because he, he and Shirley Kishiyama, his wife at the time, they started that restaurant. So we just all pitched in and we became customers, but we also helped in mm -hmm. any way we could. We were all excited to have a really good restaurant here. Uh, because it used to be you either had to drive to Portland, which was really an overgrown village at the time. There, was, there were like two places to eat in, in Portland at that time. The Benson Hotel, which nobody could afford, or the Veritable Quandary, which is just reopened and is still existing. Um, they, their, their original restaurant just closed last year because the, fed, the feds wanted that area for a new federal building mm -hmm. in Portland, but they just opened it up again and it's still in existence. Or you would have to go down to the coast to Moe's to get a bowl of clam chowder or something like that. There was no place to eat here or any place between here and Portland or here in the coast. It was, it was 8,000 people. Right. Actually, um, in the place Nick says now, there was a restaurant called Irene's. And they got closed down because they had got, where Rice's Furniture is mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. is where the slaughterhouse was. <laughs> and they had gone and stolen a cow, <laughs> killed it and pulled it over to the restaurant to butcher it. And they got caught. Oh, God. And so they got closed down. That's quite I, a story. Oh, there is a lot of stories. <laughs> there are a lot of stories. But that's, that one is just <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. And it paved the way for Nick's to open that. And then it was closed for a while. That storefront was closed for a while. And, and then he came in, and it was a wonderful old restaurant. You know, it had bar stools in the front with an old bar, and the back room wasn't made into the back room as it is now, but it would be like a storage room. We had put up a basketball court so we could all like, shoot <laughs> baskets and that kind of stuff. But it only had the front room and had these wonderful old booths, so everybody felt really private and nice. 
in these red leather booths. And it was a great place, had that kind of popcorn ceiling. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was old time. Mm -hmm. It was old time, but it was good. So we still talk about Nick's today as being kind of one of the, the preeminent kind of parts of the Oregon wine industry. What was it, you kind of described it a little bit, but what was it about the place that made it so special and made it so res resonate so much? Well, first of all, the food is excellent. And always, before local and sustainable became fashionable words, Nick was always local. I mean, as proven by his wine list, but mm -hmm. also he tried to buy from, when he could, from growers here. But there, there was no farmer's market in those days or anything mm -hmm. like that. And, but he was uh, always a supporter of, of what was local. And he's a wonderful chef. He made great food. His minestrone soup is famous. His pastas were handmade at a time when nobody was making handmade pastas. Um, and Carmen has just continued with the tradition, but kicked it up about a hundred notches, <laughs> too. But and also the friendliness. Everybody. You know, the people who were waiting tables knew the people who were coming in. It was a very friendly place. It was like going home. You'd walk in, it was like, this is your neighborhood. This is your home, you know. And people knew you by name and knew people were welcomed. And especially people who had never eaten there were really welcome because, mm -hmm. you know, wanted to build their customer base. Sure. But, and the food just was always terrific and generous. <laughs> and so you said earlier you were, you were working there when the idea for IPNC was hatched and, and, you, and, you just, and you volunteered. So take me through kind of the preparation for the early IPNC. Like what, what, what was your role and how did it come together? Well, I organized all of the food. And I don't know exactly what all the events are, but even that first year, many of the events that are still there today were there to begin with. So there was like the Friday night dinner, Friday lunch. Um, later on, we started with going to the wineries for lunch. Mm -hmm. uh, there was always the salmon bake. There was the Sunday brunch. I don't think the first year we had that Sunday afternoon special event. Mm -hmm. that but that was incorporated during my, I was there for the first 15 years. So there were changes over that period of time. But, um, so my job was to organize, to order all the food, which I don't think is done anymore. I think now each chef has to order his own mm. food. And, but I not only ordered all of the food, got the menus, made sure there, the menus were compatible. There wasn't a lot of overlap mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Contacted the chefs, got them to agree to come, get every piece of crockery and cooking equipment that they needed. And it was the old Linfield College kitchen. There was no air conditioning. And this event always happened the last weekend of July. So I would get huge fans <laughs> in to try to keep, people were just, sure. they were just melting back there. They were melting in the uh, dining room as well. But that's how we got the idea about moving them outside. Like the Friday night dinner now is outside and things like that. But 
I just organized everything there had to do with it, and I organized the volunteers that came into the kitchen and their lodging and what they needed and, uh, you know, taking care of them because we wanted to make them feel appreciated. We always had a volunteer dinner for them and made sure that we had breakfast for them and kept them hydrated and fed. So there just was many, many, de I mean, the food part is big. Mm -hmm. This is I don't know anymore what the wine part is like, but it used to be equal. If it isn't anymore, I, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. Because I haven't done that since 2000 or 1999, something like that. So it's a while ago. But in our first year, we had 350 people and sold out right from the get-go. And then it incrementally built. And we were always contained by the size of the Linfield dining room, mm -hmm. how many people you could see. And they sort of now gotten around that, too, by doing double shifts mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But we, at that time, we were constrained. And we, had, we didn't have very much money. You know, the budgets were very, very skinny and, and strict. <laughs> so it was it was amazing, but it was fun and it was and it was the time before Portland became known as such a food destination. So it was a wonderful way to incorporate the food and wine and all these people got great pub publicity mm -hmm. and uh, really helped kickstart their uh, Vitali Paley, mm -hmm. um, so many of the chefs uh, who are still in existence today. There are some that have now have retired, sure. actually. Sure. But it's, it's always been a great event. How did you come up with the idea, or how was the idea for the salmon bake? Because that's kind of the iconic part of the festival. Well, we, uh, we write, there was, a, there was people down at Depot Bay mm -hmm. who did salmon bakes that we knew about. And so we thought, well, that would be great. We would get them up here, and then we'd get everybody outside, mm -hmm. and we could sell extra tickets to it. <laughs> sure, sure. And that's what we did. And right from the get-go, and we just kept refining that salmon bake. And after a while, there are local chefs who took over the actual cooking of the salmon, but they know how to do the cedar plank. Mm -hmm. and of the big fire pit. Oh, that was the other thing. I'd have to get the fire pit dug. I would have to get all the wood. And, you know, the, the tents, the hay bales, you name it. Everything that went to with the food is what I was responsible for in the end. That's a big job. It was. It was great, though. It was the best job I ever had. <laughs> it was. It was the most collegial. I loved working with all the, the chefs. I loved working with the people at IPNC. Uh, every director that I worked with, I really liked it was Susan Blosser. And then after that, Corby Wright. Who's, and after that was Pat Dudley, <laughs> I think. Pat Dudley and I are still really like this. She was there the longest period of time while I was there. And... Uh, Amy Wesselman, mm -hmm. she was there when I, when I decided to go on to other things. But um, yeah, no, it's just a great group of people. I, I tell you, I've been a lucky person 
to have these people as my friends yeah. my whole life yes. or my adult life. <laughs> so what was, in, what was important to the people who were start, when IPNC was starting, what was important to the founders? What, were you, what was the focus? To promote Oregon wine. That was the, that's why we never, it was never a contest. It was never going to be a winner, like who has the best. It was a celebration, and it was to promote Oregon wine. That was the idea, and to promote it all over the U.S. and the world. And that's why we had the French coming in, the New Zealanders coming in, the Germans coming in, the Austrians, the English, hmm. the Italians. Um, it was to get the word out, and then the press came, and would invite important people to come speak, and then the press would definitely come. And that's, and we had wonderful wineries. With a lot of the winemakers had very good connections, especially with the Burgundians, mm -hmm. and they would invite them themselves to come, and they would come, and they wanted to see what this organ was all about. Sure. And you know, they, uh, there was an article in the New Yorker and many years ago, all about Lalu, who had Romani Conti, still such a premier mm -hmm. uh, wine, but um, her, she, she or somebody who represented her and Aubert, whatever, anyway, they discovered the blue moon. <laughs> and I mean, this was like, you know, it's like you go to a different country and you get in with the locals, you think you found nirvana. Right. And, and so there was this New Yorker article that talked about all of that. You can find it in the archives. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. The little old blue moon in the New Yorker. Well, you know, it was pretty <laughs> wild on the streets of McMinnville for that weekend, too. I can only imagine. People like to party after the music went off at the salmon bay. <laughs> so. I can only imagine. We had, we had rules imposed on us by the surrounding neighborhoods, how late the music could be, and sure, that sure. kind of stuff. Yeah, no, we had, we had to keep pushing and there was pushback, so. Yeah. But now, it's, I think it's the premier event in Oregon as far as a tourist attraction, so I, don't, I think people are pretty happy yeah. to cooperate. So it, it, besides the size of the event, what else, is, what else is kind of the same as when it began and, and how, is, how has IPNC changed? Well, I think the, the people who come to IPNC, whether they're new or they're people who come back again and again, they have this great spirit of that, like they're all at, at camp together. You know, it's a really fun camp. They have all these interesting lectures to go to or things to do or they blend wine or they, one year they had a spitting contest. You know how you spit wine sometimes when you're tasting? Well, they had this contest to see. <laughs> they had my husband for a while at when the buses came back from the wineries. Uh, he was on a little ice cream cart and he was handing out ice creams. I had to get all those ice creams by the end. You know, they, they just think, I, I think 
the creativity of the event and the esprit de corps among the people who attend and the people who work it as well and the volunteers. Mm -hmm. I've made some lifelong friends among the volunteers. So it's, I think there is that kind of collectiveness and that stick to, you know, they see each other at other times of the year mm -hmm. now, too. And so, to back up to you a little bit, so you, your daughter is now in the wine industry. She at, is, at, Remy Wines. <laughs> <laughs> at, and at what point did she become interested? At what point did you know she'd be part of the industry? I knew that she was going to be part of the industry when she was very young because she used to just beg me, eight, nine, ten years old, to help like the Ponzi's. She would follow them, them around and do whatever she could and um, so after a while she became a, a, an acolyte to Louisa Ponzi mm -hmm. and just worked for her and then she worked in the industry all during high school. She worked for uh, Rob Stewart when he was at ERATH then and she worked at Argyle when Rollin Souls was still there. She worked at Domain Serene. She worked, she just worked all over. And then she went to college in uh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But I knew that she was going to come back, which I'm glad she did because we bought a piece of land and we put a little vineyard on it. So now um, she gets she does mostly Italian varietals, mm -hmm. so we grow the Lagrine for her, but we also grow Pinot Noir, which we sell to other people, but she makes a Pinot Noir as well. And she makes mostly Italian varietals. Because she was such a little fish in the pond, she had to do something different. And when she was in Pittsburgh, she worked for this famous biscotti company, mm -hmm. and in the basement, they made Sangiovese. They were all, it was in the Italian neighborhood and she got hooked on Italian wines. So, um, so she does Italian wines and actually this very weekend, July 1st, she's opening up a second tasting room right on our vineyard, La Madrone Vineyard, which some of the wines actually have gotten pretty high ratings. Not her, uh, not talking about hers, but Elizabeth Chambers sellers buys Lone Madrone mm -hmm. grapes, and they got a 93 mm. from wine enthusiasts. So I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, when we spoke to her recently, she was really excited about the new tasting room. So looking forward to seeing how yeah, it comes out. Yeah, it's open. It's Saturday. That's so cool. Uh, so. From your time, you've mentioned a few stories already. Do you have any other sort of favorite stories of time, either at Nick's or IPNC days, or anything that's anything that kind of sums up the industry to you, or kind of just favorite memories? I have to think about that a little bit. Um, I don't want to tell the naughty stories, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> and funny. that's what's flooding my mind right now. Uh, Oh, we can, I can tell, I'm not going to name names, but I'll tell you about the chef who was more than 24 hours late, show up, and so his, his guy, his main man was here, and he said, and he had ordered in all of these very exotic things, very un-Oregon-like uh, potatoes, Peruvian potatoes from some mm -hmm. island, this and that. And he said, 
you figure out what to do. And Stephanie Kimmel, who uh, owns Marche and Eugene, mm -hmm. was head of the kitchen at the time with me. But I mean, she was on the board and she was, uh, we usually had one, uh, a chef come in as well. Mm -hmm. And she, and this guy ordered Lao Lao leaves and all this. And my son, who was 16 years old at the time, they just said to him, figure out what to do with these <laughs> ingredients. And he did. And he served it. And they served it. Wow. So, yeah, I really remember that. And now he's a chef. Now he's a chef. He actually is an educator. He worked at Edmonds Community College. Mm -hmm. Until uh, about a couple of years ago when he moved to Palm Springs. Edmonds is on, in Seattle. Yeah. And he was a co-chair with Tracy Edlin of the Culinary Arts Department there for many years. He and his colleagues and his best students would come down here and do all the desserts for the salmon bake oh. for many years. This beautiful serpentine table with various, many, many different desserts. It was beautiful, beautiful when you did it. Um, but now he's moved to Palm Springs and he, unfortunately, uh, not part of the, uh, of the college anymore. But Tracy, I think, is coming back down. So, it's good. So the whole family was part of IPNC? The whole family. Got my husband on the ice cream. Also, I had him pouring uh, sparkling wine at the brunch <laughs> at times. That was when we still were looking for volunteers sure. to do that. I think there's psalms now that do it. I don't think that. You know, a lot of, of the beginning was flying by the seat of your pants. And you would get, things would happen. Like one night, all the tables were set for the salmon bake and it rained. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God. All the tablecloths were wet and everything. Well, Dr. Bull opened up her house. We threw them into the, into her dryer and dried them and reset all the tables. You know, I mean, there were, there were always like last minute things, dramas. Sure. But you solved them and you went on. You went on, so it was fun. We used to have uh, Mieko Nordine. There was a wonderful, wonderful Japanese restaurant in McMinnville called Kame, mm -hmm. and we used to, so for afterwards, sometimes we would have food for the chefs, and we would have her do stuff for the chefs, and for the volunteers. Mm -hmm. I used to love it when she would make stuff. It was great. Um, right now, I, I, I don't, can't think of any permissible stories. <laughs> Those were perfect, thank you. That's, that's what we're looking for. So. You've, you've seen the whole industry grow up. I mean, you were here from the very infant, and, that, and now you've seen it, what it is now. And what are your, I'm curious what your impressions are of the changes you've seen and, and kind of what it looks like to you right now, what the industry looks like to you right now. Well, you know, David Lett started his winery in an old turkey processing plant. I don't, I think I would like to put together an architectural tour of the new wineries. They're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're so well done. They have all this wonderful technology in them. I mean, it's pretty amazing the 
differences. Uh, the same with Ponzi's. They started out mm -hmm. there in Washington County, but now they have this beautiful winery that Dick Ponzi actually designed with his son-in-law, mm -hmm. Brett and Fogelstrom. And it's, you know, top of the line, beautiful new tasting rooms. So I like the changes. It was fun at the beginning, <laughs> but it's nice to see things grow and and become more sophisticated. Um, my my daughter is more of, you know, she's she's more at the beginning now. Mm -hmm. She's at a beginning place, where these people are at kind of the ultimate place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I hope you all come out to see <laughs> her place there on uh, Bremen Orchards Road. Definitely, definitely. What about? What's the biggest change you've seen, other than, again, other than size? Is there a, is it still collaborative? Does it still feel like a small industry? Well, I'm not really involved in the industry right now, except kind of peripherally mm -hmm. with my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think it's changed. I, you know, we're talking about a handful of wineries to begin with, and how many are there now? 600? 700 now. 700? 700, yeah. So, no, it's definitely changed. I don't think the collegiality is there. Uh, somewhat, mm -hmm. I think, but they're little like small enclaves of collegiality and cooperation. And there's so many new wineries, I don't know them all. Somebody will say, well, this is an Oregon wine from the Willamette Valley, and I'll go, it is? I used to know everyone in the industry and everything. Sure. And now I would say I, don't, I know very little. Sure. Yeah, same here. We we struggle to keep up ourselves. No, it's it. It's fun though. I mean, it's dynamic. I like that. I like the creativity. I like all the energy, and mm -hmm. you know, it's it's fabulous. It's fabulous to have seen something born as a little sprout, sure. and now it's a huge oak tree. You know, it's just fantastic. What do you think will happen next? Like, what does the future for Oregon wine look like? I have no idea. I'm what? sorry, I wish I could answer no, okay. that question. What do you hope it looks like? Well, I just hope it becomes a worldwide phenomena. I think there is some Oregon wine in other countries like Japan, China, uh, to a very small degree, I might add. Uh, England, Denmark, Sweden. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones I know of. but. I hope that Oregon wine is drunk all over the world. You know, it'd be great, and that it's held in esteem by the people of the world as well, that we have a global outreach. Okay, well, that's, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked you, anything else you'd like to add or that we should have talked about? I'll have to come back. <laughs> That's cool. We can do. We can do part two. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll go thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.